ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, this is The Money. I'm Richard Aidey. We're going to talk about time and time frames later in the show. Let's begin with consultancies. As I'm sure you're very aware, one of the biggest, PwC, was embroiled in a scandal last year after it emerged that it had shared confidential tax information, information it had gleaned from working with the ATO with some of its other clients, enabling them to pay less tax. PwC is part of the big consultancy landscape that economist Mariana Mazzucato took aim at in her book, The Big Con. Now, we spoke to Mariana before the news about PwC had broken, and her critique isn't so much about the industry, but the way it's been able to move from the sidelines to the very centre of business and government. Yes, it's the problem. And as you say, we don't actually even blame them so much. We ask why are governments getting fooled and why are governments continually uh, hiring and outsourcing their own knowledge and activities to the consulting firms, even after, in many cases, dreadful, you know, scams, mistakes, and so on. And, you know, if you look at Australia, you have capacity within the government. Why not use it instead of asking for McKinsey to do your climate strategy? Yeah, well, there's been some debate here, especially I know in some levels of the public service about how much capacity has been lost over over recent decades. But we'll come back to McKinsey and climate strategy. But just before we do that, a very recent example was the pandemic. You've got case studies from Australia, from France, from Italy, UK, the US. Just give us a couple briefly. Sure. I mean, in the UK where I live, what was really extraordinary was that the government decided to outsource the test and trace system, which, as you'll recall, was absolutely essential for every government, uh, to Deloitte. And Deloitte, uh, regardless of what one might think of the firm, has no expertise on test and trace. So that's really one of the questions we're raising, which is why does it seem that we always need the rubber stamp of the consulting firm, regardless of whether they actually have any expertise in the matter that they're being asked to consult on, or in this case, actually carry out. That went very badly. It it didn't work well. The test and trace system in the UK is not a good example of governing a complex challenge uh, in an efficient, dynamic, innovative way. And yet then the vaccine rollout, which actually did go quite well in the UK, what's interesting is it was done through a decentralized network of GP practices, uh, you know, through the National Health Service. So as you just said before, there's kind of two different problems. One is that because we're not investing within our health systems, our education systems, our transport systems, we're getting a weaker and weaker state, which then requires others to help it do its work. (laughs) Now, to reverse that, we actually need to be investing within Mm. uh, the public sector to make it dynamic, uh, innovative, agile, uh, flexible, and so on. But that requires a decision to insource capacity, which doesn't mean that then you don't need consultants or advisors or others on the sidelines. But when you no longer invest within your capacity, you actually end up literally requiring them to do some of the most central functions of, of government. Yeah. So how how and why did the consulting firms become so central and so powerful? 
Well, we look at different factors, but one that I think is is interesting to note is that one might think that this was some sort of big conspiracy of neoliberal right-wing governments trying to get rid of the state. Actually, it wasn't that. In the UK, it was the Labour government that actually opened the way for consulting to rise to the level it has because the idea was that we are not Thatcherites, we're not Reaganites, of course we need the state, but we need to make it as efficient, in quotes, efficient, (laughs) as the private sector. In the United States, the Clinton government also really opened the way to consultants. It's not that they weren't there already, but it it is, I think, a symptom of when you kind of forget what government is for, that it's a public purpose that's very different from saying government comes into certain sectors and has to prove its efficiency on some sort of static metrics of cost-benefit analysis and that present value. It's interesting that the, the way you walk through this, the doors were opened by left-of-centre governments, and I always wonder if that's partly because they feel they have to show that they're not anti-business, whereas the right-of-centre exactly. governments... Everybody knows that they're pro-business. But can we move on? Because you you write about the the skewed risk-reward relationship that's at the heart of of the consulting industry's business model. What what briefly is that? Well, if you look at, you know, whether we're talking about a test and trace system, whether we're talking about another type of digital strategy, a climate strategy, a, a health strategy, there's huge risks, right? The chance of making a mistake is high. What's interesting is that even though there's been so many different errors uh, made by the consulting industry, they are not under the kind of scrutiny that the civil service is when it makes a mistake. We all know about it. Governments are told they shouldn't be picking winners, that you know they should just be leveling the playing field and getting out of the way. And what's striking is that the way these contracts are actually set up with the consulting companies you're kind of doomed to fail from the government side because if things go well, they don't get the credit. If things go bad, the consulting companies actually don't have to own up to the mistakes and they might end up settling as McKinsey ended up settling with the Purdue uh, opioid uh, crisis, but it doesn't prevent them actually from getting the next kind of round of contracts. I just wanted to ask you briefly about that one because that Purdue opioid contract, which is when McKinsey were both consulting to the Food and Drug Administration and Purdue Pharma, on the other hand, to boost sales of OxyContin at the same time, surely it's up to governments to do better due diligence to make sure that there are no... Well, that's a conflict of interest. Yes, there's been so many different articles. You can just, you know, Google uh, (laughs) uh, crises uh, within these different consulting companies. And this, of course, is one of the... Uh, large ones in terms of also, in the end, McKinsey agreeing to pay $600 million to settle uh, due to its role in helping to basically turbocharge opioid sales for, for Purdue. But we, we say, look, these are kind of scandals that we can look at and then treat almost as exceptions to a normally functioning industry. And we say, actually, no, the way that this industry functions in normal times, even without the scandals, is extremely problematic due to exactly what you just said, the kind of conflicts of interest. If you look at South Africa, for example, you have the consulting companies, the same ones advising, consulting both for ESCOM, for example, a state-owned energy enterprise, and the Treasury, which is regulating ESCOM. You, You can't be on both sides of the street, or at least if you are, 
it should be extremely transparent. At the end of the book where we talk about solutions, you know, that's one of them that we need very transparent contracts where governments must know and citizens must be able to ask uh, governments for this knowledge all the different types of consulting uh, contracts that they have, which might actually pose conflicts of interest. So if you're advising on ESG, environmental, social, and and governance metrics for companies that want to show that they are climate friendly, then it's very important for us to know whether they're also advising the fossil fuel companies to basically um, circumvent Mm. a lot of the emerging regulations that are about making our planet sustainable. Yes, uh, one one thinks of the New York Times investigation that revealed that in recent years McKinsey's advised at least 43 of the 100 biggest polluters, including BP and Exxon and Gazprom and Aramco. So yes, while we're on the ESG area about the environment, you've got a pretty scathing example of the Australian government working with McKinsey to come up with a report on how to get zero emissions that didn't Mm. quite add up. Yeah, I mean, that's been that's been widely uh, reported on. But what we focus on is something that is less reported on, which is the question of why did the government not use actually its internal capacity through CSIRO, you know, S, I can't even pronounce it. CSIRO. C-S-I-R-O. C-S-I-R-O, yes. C-S-I-R-O. I don't know why I tried to pronounce it with as though it was an Italian. C-S-I-R-O. So that's actually quite common, which is, even when there is government capacity, let alone the fact that we have been dismantling that capacity, why aren't we not using those types of organizations for the kind of expertise that's required? But even universities, I mean, I'm a you know proud academic. It's, it's actually quite amazing how little governments properly use academic research. And, you know, you have to remember that these are, there's academics all over the world who've spent the last, you know, decades of their lives studying (laughs) uh, climate. And yet it seems so much easier for governments to think that McKinsey will rubber stamp the climate strategy. And yet again, with so little expertise, and in that particular case, the modeling was quite faulty. And again, I'm, I'm sure you know, you know more than I do of the ramifications it then had in terms of your own debates in your country about why that happened. But the big question is, why did they even get the contract in the first place? Yeah. Do you think, though, that kind of blind faith, it seems that governments have had, and businesses too, in the consulting industry, is starting to change? Um, I'm not sure. And I'm glad you raised the fact that it's also in the business sector. The title of the book is The Big Con, How the Consulting Industry Has Weakened Our Businesses and Fantalized Our Governments and Warped Our Economies. And, you know, businesses as well aren't owning up to the decisions, especially when they are difficult decisions, whether they're ones around downsizing, as we saw, you know, the 1980s trend of downsizing in many large corporates, or the decisions to engage in massive share buyback schemes. You know, over $6 trillion have been used just to buy back shares to boost stock prices, stock options, and executive pay among the largest 500 companies in the world. These are decisions that management takes, which might be seen as controversial in having the nice uh, Deloitte, KPMG, uh, uh, McKinsey stamp on those decisions seems to make it easier to swallow by, for example, the um, the boards. And, and that itself is, is problematic. In fact, one of the things that we look at is how the history of capitalism in recent years in terms of some trends, which academics like myself has, have highlighted as 
dysfunctional trends, like the example I just gave of increasing financialization of the corporate sector, has co-evolved with the history of consulting. So, you know, trends in capitalism, trends in consulting have co-evolved, including, as we just talked about, some of the latest trends around ESG and climate-friendly policies, right? So these seem to be trends that the industry then just surfs on, you know, almost regardless of whether we're talking about downsizing or or climate. Or cutting emissions, yes. Yeah, exactly. And so the question is, what is the actual value that is being provided by this industry? How could we measure that? It's not about just getting rid of the consulting sector. It's also about really trying to reform it. You know, we always have advisors and consultants and different types of um, decision-making. Just think of doctors who consult, nurses consult, head teachers consult, academics consult. So the problem is not consulting. The problem is the business model behind a very Mm. large industry, as I said, over a trillion right now, which has a conflict of interest also in the sense that there's no incentive to have the client whether it's the government or a business, become independent. No, because it is difficult, I think, to imagine unscrambling this egg. So very quickly, you've got at the end of the book how organisations can kind of liberate themselves from an over-reliance on the consulting industry. Just give us a few of the, of the ways you've come up with. Sure. I mean, first, we really, uh, you know, talk about the need for a whole new vision and narrative and remit for the civil service. We need to rebuild what has become weak uh, capabilities in the public sector. And really also, in order to do that, we first also have to recognize government as being a co-creator of value in the economy and not just at best fixing markets, at best trying to prove its efficiency with static kind of private sector metrics of cost-benefit analysis. And second, that then really actually requires insourcing that capacity. I cite uh, Ernest Brackett, who was the head of procurement in, for the Apollo program with NASA. He said, if we keep outsourcing our knowledge, and that was you know, already back in the 1960s, we're going to get captured by brochuremanship. They didn't have PowerPoints at the time. (laughs) So, you know, sexy brochures by companies coming in. So you actually need that internal capacity in order to even know who to work with, which private sector companies to work with, even which consulting companies you might work with, how to write a proper terms of reference, a proper contract. Uh, Third, we really need to embed learning uh, into contract evaluation. So, you know, organizations can adapt and need to be able to adapt and be dynamic and so on. But we need to be able to evaluate and assess whether contracts with, say, consulting companies are in fact designed in such a way to allow that organization, whether it's government or business, to become stronger, to become more dynamic, more creative, and eventually not require that consulting arm to be there forever. So much more transparency in terms of contracts at that level, but also transparency in terms of what we were talking about before, disclosing the different types of conflicts of interest, right? So to fully understand how a consulting firm's clientele might affect the advice it provides, consultancy contracts should no longer be able to operate under this kind of complete veil of secrecy. And I guess lastly, you know, really differentiating when the consultancies are on the sideline versus when they're actually doing the work of government. Yes. You know, you wouldn't know how to ride a bicycle unless you fell off. So the kind of learning by doing, trial and error and error is a critical part of learning. So we say that governments need to actually row so that they can steer the ship. <laughs> it's not about just thinking that at best you're just steering and someone else is kind of doing the machinery of government. As soon as you 
outsource the machinery. You're actually less able to govern yes. the greatest challenges over time, which I repeat, actually require public, private, third sector organizations to be collaborating together. But what we've witnessed in the last 50 years, I'd say, is the dismantling of the capacity within our government organizations to even be a good partner. I mean, this is the irony, to even be a good partner to these other organizations. It's a point you've made before and a good point, I think, to finish. Thank you very much for joining us today. The book is fizzing with ideas. Congratulations and thanks for joining us on The Money again. Thanks so much. Mariana Mazzucato is co-author with Rosie Collington of The Big Con, how the consulting industry weakens our businesses, infantilises our governments and warps our economies. The long-term and the really long-term matter. They matter enormously. Think global warming. But we just don't focus on them very well. Richard Fisher wants to change that. And he's written a book, The Long View, that bells the cat on why we're so consumed with the very short-term. Yeah, so, so around 100 years ago, in New York, at the New York Stock Exchange, there was a practice that was introduced. Um, it was very simple. It, it was a an ask for companies that were on the, the New York Stock Exchange to report back to the market on how they'd done every quarter and what their forecasts were going to be for the next quarter. This was quarterly reporting. And it transformed the way that companies think about their kind of plans and the choices they make in terms of whether they invest or whether they do things for kind of like the short-term shareholders. I spoke to a researcher on this, like Arthur Kraft, who's based at City University. He's written about the history of it and how it it's shaped business ever since. I mean, not not all countries have quarterly reporting, no. but because the you know the US is so dominant in Western capitalism, it's influenced uh, far beyond its own borders. It has it radically shaped the way leaders within companies think about their their prospects and plans. So, if they make kind of decisions that displease the market for the next quarter, they can be punished. This is what Arthur Kraft calls discipline. But then also they themselves, according to Kraft, make decisions that uh, harm their own long-term interests. Uh, Kraft calls this myopia. So it's li- leaders will do things like uh, invest less in R&D, make job cuts, less less focus on training and people, all, all the things that would benefit the long-term view of their companies, but they're stuck in the quarterly kind of mindset mm. of the next few months are, are, are the most important uh, time frame, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that the shareholders are pleased. You quote this survey of senior executives, which found that the majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them, would act against the company's long-term interest if it gave them a kind of quarterly boost, partly because their remuneration is often tied to this. Yeah, that's true. I think I think that, that's one of the things that I found when researching the book, that it's not necessarily that, that the individuals are bad actors working against the, their own company's interests. It's, it's more that the entire systemic kind of incentive structure that's established, it often just plays to basic human behavior. You know, if, if you incentivize people to, to only kind of focus on the next few months and, to, and, and you pay them handsomely to do that, then quite obviously mm-hmm. individuals are going to kind of like follow those, those, those interests. And so this kind of like focus on targets that are short term rather than long term, this is one of the key kind of things that underpins short term thinking. Yeah. So we need to think about those. But you also found examples of companies that are very old, I mean, centuries old, what is it about these that's led to that longevity? One country I looked at in particular was Japan. It has more very old companies than almost any other country in the world. So 
there are, Europe, I mean, there are European companies, for example, Grolsch or Italy's Beretta, they've been around for, for centuries. So it's not the case that, that there aren't long-term companies elsewhere. It's just Japan has a lot of them. So it begs the question, why is that? There are various different factors, some of which are culturally specific to, to Japan. But generally speaking, one of the things that makes companies last within Japan is, is, is a focus on serving the community as well as the the kind of the shareholders. So many of, of these these organizations are kind of provide a kind of benevolent service to the people that they serve, but also kind of like to the people who work within the organizations themselves. So the organizations are communities. There's, there's also kind of like the factor of many of these these old long-lasting companies serve basic human needs as well. So you know there's one one particular company which you may have heard of that started like a very long time ago, focusing on playing cards and yes. games. Uh, yeah, it's now called Nintendo. It produces Zelda, which I've been playing with my, with my daughter over the past weekend. You know, the focus is, has been on play. That's, that's always going to be a human need, even if we fast forward two hundred years into the future. Like our, our future generations will still be playing. And so, thinking about like what are the things that last in that sense, I think is another reason why long-term companies have existed for so long in, in Japan. You also talk about deep-time organizations, Richard. What are these and what do they have in common? This was a, a study that was published a few years ago that just looked at some of the factors that, again, make organizations last longer. You know, th these are organizations like the Marylebone Cricket Club, uh, Sverica Reichsbank in Sweden, which is a you know, financial institution, University of Al-Karin, which is in Morocco, which is an Islamic university. Many of these organizations have lasted because they're attached to kind of long-term power, like to the crown in the UK, for example, mm. or a religion like Islam. They they also, like like the Japanese companies, have a uh, they provide a service, they provide a community. The term that the researchers used was that they're benevolent monopolists. That they're the only ones that do the thing, yeah. But they benefit the community around them, you know. As it, like so, the University of Al Karim trains people. It's, it's you know it's one of the oldest universities in the world, but you know it also encourages a focus on donating money to the community uh, to, to kind of like ensuring that the, the the environment around it prospers as well as it itself, which is something that the often corporations don't do. Another way of looking at it is, is that like. It more than just benefits the community. It means that the corporation will last longer if it invests beyond its own shareholder needs. Yeah. Then we get to political systems, which are overwhelmingly biased towards short-termism. What can we do about that? It's a deep challenge for politics. I mean, there's a great quote. Um, Jean-Claude Juncker, who was kind of a former leader in the, the European Union, you know, after the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and he said, we all know what to do but we don't know how to get re-elected once we've done it. That's the central dilemma for the politician, like how to kind of do things for the long term, but also carry on in their own personal careers. If we move beyond the political sphere, something else you highlight is that we can embrace a long-term view and indeed maintain long-term actions in things like our traditions and in practicing faiths. I was looking for examples of things that have lasted for a very long time and that could, that could last into the future. Zoroastrianism does, you know, so it's a faith um, based in Iran and in India, is, is, is keep a flame going. So the religion has the, these kind of everlasting flames which have been kept burning for well over 1,000 years in some cases. Keeping it going speaks to kind of like the, the challenges that you have when you have to do things over a, a very long time. How do you make things last 
you know, when they're ephemeral, like a fire. And one of the aspects that you can see within within the religion is, is that the, there are elements of ritual and community. So when you have a ritual and when people come together to kind of focus on an act, that often can be longer lasting than, say, for example, building something like a statue and then hoping it will last and it will, it will be kept safe. There are incentive structures that make it beneficial for to, to kind of be part of that the re- religious view but there's, there's also status and so the, an architecture around the flame that keeps it going and i thought that was really interesting yeah. because things like rituals you associate them with religions but there are many other rituals that you know going to a football game doing rituals with your family like eating breakfast in a certain way there's, there's, there's all sorts of kind of like things that we do as communities the question i wanted to ask in the book is, is like what what rituals foster long-term behaviors you also talk about some of the approaches to time that have come from different indigenous peoples, especially Native Americans in North America. Yeah, so this this is this is one of the the better known principles in in my field of long term thinking, the seventh generation principle. There are different interpretations, but you know one of them is is that leaders should focus on decisions that benefit seven generations hence. So you know, seven generations, one hundred and fifty years into the future. Others interpret it as being more symmetrical, as in there are seven generations, three beforehand, you know, mm. your great-great-grandparent and three after. You know, you should do things that are right by your ancestors and also your descendants. The meaning is the same, basically. We should think beyond just the present generation and think about what our ancestors have done for us, but also kind of like what we should leave behind for them. This kind of like duty to posterity is something that is essential to human nature and how we relate to one another, but sometimes it's forgotten. Well, when it's remembered, it's often remembered because it's a story, and we're a storytelling animal, uh, I think Stephen Pinker called us. And, and there's a power in them, and you actually make a point of, of telling one that has a power, but almost certainly is not true. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, in the UK, told it a few years ago in a speech. So the story goes that there's a college in Oxford called New College, and it dates back to the 13th century, and it had beams uh, in the, the main hall that were rotting supposedly about 200 years ago and so they needed to be replaced and so the the kind of leaders of the college go to the forester and say like have we got any oaks and the forester supposedly said oh yeah the oaks are ready now the oaks that had been planted in the 13th century were now ready to be chopped down to replace the beams and supposedly the leaders had the foresight to do that um, it's not quite true. As in, I spoke, I spoke to the archivist at the college, Jennifer Thorpe, and she's a bit exasperated by it because it's you know it keeps getting repeated as a story because of its power. You know what it shows mm. for long-term thinking. That said, there are examples elsewhere where trees have been planted uh, with the idea that they will be kind of like chopped down later on. So it's a powerful story, and not cold and mathematical. They're, they're mm. more kind of emotional, and that, that's what I love about them. That's where I want to finish because you—that's where you finish the book about, I suppose that the advantages, the the upsides of taking a long-term view. And one of the things you you highlight is that it is restorative just to think that way. The start of the book for me began with a personal experience. I began to think about my daughter's trajectory to the next century. She was born in 2013. She stands a pretty good chance of seeing the end of this century, which blew my mind when I thought about it. Mm. Then I started to think about, you know, the, the year 2100, uh, is, is often associated with things like sea level rise, robots taking a lot of jobs. It's, it's rarely good news stories. And so that, that in a way was a motivator to me to take that that longer view. 
I started from a point of pessimism, but speaking to people who, who take the long view, long-term organizations, individuals, uh, companies, they show that taking the long view is more than just an exercise in sacrifice. It's not just about giving something to future generations and taking away from the current one. It can be restorative. You know, if you take a, a long view, it's it's a lot easier to navigate the tumultuous times that we live in. You know, you can see what truly matters. It gives a source of energy, perspective, and, and ultimately hope that, that there is a kind of plural futures that lie ahead. The past is singular, it's fixed. The present is the same. But there are many different futures that lie ahead of us, many different paths and trajectories. And the longer you go into the future, the more you see that those bifurcate into different kind of paths. And, and that, for me, is, is a source of hope that the future is not yet fixed. And that, that was ultimately the conclusion of the book. I think it's a very hopeful book. And I really, really got something out of reading it. Thank you for joining us today, Richard. Thank you. Richard Fisher, author of The Long View, Why We Need to Transform How the World Sees Time. That's it for now. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.